Our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3 and I'll be reading verses 16 and 17 and then followed by 2 James. I'll be reading verses 14 to 17. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And from 2 James on faith and deeds. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the word of our Lord. I hope you can hear me. It's easy, isn't it, to, uh, to give when we have much, and yet often we don't. We think it hard to give when we don't have much, and yet I've seen some spectacular examples of people giving um, remarkably out of what seems to be nothing. And I believe there's a blessing in giving. And today, of course, we're talking about financial giving. Over the years, most of us have been encouraged to do good, especially to those who are in need. Uh, for example, in Acts 20, 35, Jesus said it's more blessed uh, to give than to receive. And in James 1.27, we are reminded that the religion that is a true religion, that's pure and faultless, is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see a church raising funds to help another church. How generous is that? I've been to churches that maybe haven't quite caught that spirit. <laughs> it seems to be all inward. But there's a balance there, isn't there? And a lot has been said about the wonderful generosity of the early church. Uh, I don't know whether you realise it, but um, Acts, Acts 2.44 uh, 2, to 45 talks about how all the believers sold possessions to raise money to give to people, to anyone in need. And the question has to be asked, why were people in need? Well, if you remember that there had been this remarkable um, preaching and there had been this remarkable uh, input of these 3,000 uh, people in one day alone. Um, now, uh, it's quite natural to understand, I think, when you think about it, that these people were not all wealthy. In fact, a lot of them came from very, very poor circumstances. 
Many of them, in fact, were poverty-stricken. And the church proclaimed that it was a place of love. And the poverty of church members put this claim to the test, as it does everywhere when we make that claim. Was the church really a family of faith or not? If it was, then everyone needed to pitch in to help the believers who were in need. Now, we already know from Acts 6 that it was a big situation that they faced. As I've just said, there were 3,000 people on one day alone and more beyond that. And so that's a challenge for any church. A lovely challenge, but it is a challenge. And the task was so great that, and the time so complicated that they actually decided to appoint deacons. And this is where the deacon, the diaconate, uh, arose. Now, the other aspect that we need to consider, I think, is that history tells us that in the year 250, the church in Rome, and I don't mean the Roman Catholic Church, I mean the church that was in Rome, was feeding 1,500 people a day. And let's put that in context. The poverty role of the early church was the largest social group, it grew to be the largest social group in ancient Rome. It was bigger than the metal workers union, yes they actually had a metal workers union, and, uh, and it was bigger than the bakers union, and they were huge in Rome. Rome was noted for its pizzas <laughs> and its rolls. Um, it was a big thing. So while the church was all about preaching the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The church also had to deal with the consequences of preaching the gospel. And of course we do too. If we are out there preaching the gospel and sharing the news about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, as people come to Christ, then they will be added to the church. And we will have to deal not only with people not having a mature faith and needing to grow in that faith, but they will also have practical needs. I don't know whether anyone has read a book by James Smith, and James Smith, the author, has a book called The Good and Beautiful Community. That's what he calls the church, the good and beautiful community. He says that people in the church are apprentices. We're all apprentices. Um, you know, some of us need to learn more about being apprentices. I, I've, I've done that, that apprenticeship, if you like, in the church myself, and I haven't always done it well. And I'm so thankful for people who discipled me and helped me to step up in that. And the thing he says, Smith says, is that apprentices of Jesus are not part-time do-gooders. You know, it's not just something that we do occasionally. It's, it's a lifestyle. So when we talk about this larger thing of, of, uh, of giving, of finances, it's a whole-of-life thing. So specifically looking at finances, biblically the motivation for sharing our finances comes from a heart captured by God's vision of community. And as you, if you've been doing the, uh, the study and the book, you'll, you're beginning to get uh, that message coming through. So it's a heart captured by God's vision of community, not a set of rules. Do we need some rules in the church? Yes, we do. 
But what it's about is the heart change. It's about the, if you like, the Bible says, the circumcision of the heart. We want everyone to know that they are loved by God and to enjoy the fullness of life in community as God intended. And while, money, uh, while we give our money with a free heart because of the freedom God has shown us, rather than because of rules, nevertheless, the Bible does give us some guidelines, doesn't it? Um, and among those guidelines are talk about tithing and about giving. And tithing in the Bible is normally thought of as 10% of our income given to a church. While giving is what we donate above and beyond that. Now, they're both expressions of generosity, but they're not quite the same. And I think we need to keep that distinction. And like I said earlier, we need to do it, whatever we do, with a free heart, with a generous heart. Not because there are some rules that we just feel we have to bow before the rules in that church or the, you know, the things that are pushed over us. And some of us have been in situations in the past where, where we have been in more legalistic situations. And, uh, and I think you would affirm that that can be quite a harsh environment and it stifles giving because it's being given for the wrong reason. I want to look firstly to the Old Testament intentions of giving briefly and then into the New Testament guidelines. The Old Testament talked about tithing and giving and for example in, in De Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 8, it says if anyone's poor among your fellow Israelites, uh, in any of the towns that the Lord is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend whenever they need. And Deuteronomy 14.22 talks about one-tenth to do that. In that, in that Old Testament society, they were mainly uh, living a life that was tied to the land. And so, of course, whatever they did in terms of real faith had to be connected to their lives, their everyday lives. They were earning money by growing things. Um, they were sharing out of what they grew. And the giving that they gave in the Old Testament, whether it be the tithe or whether it be some other giving, was to remind them that whatever they had, came from God. The prosperity they had in having a home, a shelter, was from God. The prosperity that they had in what they grew was from God, and whatever they exchanged in terms of finances was from God. And of course, every Sabbath year, there were, all the debts were cancelled, and that meant that nobody would be locked into a, being a slave or being in debt forever. And Deuteronomy 15, 9 to 11, and this is from the voice version, says it like this. It, it's talking once again about a hard attitude. And that's so important, isn't it? The hard attitude. So here in Deuteronomy, in one of the most legalistic books that we find in the, in the Bible, we actually find it talking about the heart, the heart issue. And it says, don't think like this. Well, it's almost the seventh year when de debts are cancelled. So if I lend anything to this other person now, I'll never get it back. 
That was a bad investment, wasn't it? <laughs> think, of, think of that today. Lend some money to somebody, and in a couple of years, it's all cancelled, and you don't get your money back. That's a horrible investment. <laughs> but God says, you know, the heart. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't think about it um, in that way. If you think this way, you'll be hostile towards your neighbours, and you won't give them anything. They'll cry out to the eternal God against you, and he'll consider what you've done a sin. So give generously to the person in need. Okay, let's switch across now to the New Testament. Now, Jesus and his apostles stressed the twin themes of celebrating the generosity of God and extending generosity to others, particularly the poor. And I don't have to tell you, I think, the, the many times that that's said in the Bible. We all know the stories of the, the Good Samaritan and the rich fool and the rich man and Lazarus, um, the sheep and the goats. And There are many, many examples. But I'll just stop briefly on the story of the rich young ruler. We, we, we find that in Matthew 19, 16 to 13. And this man claims to have kept all of the laws. I don't know whether any of us would have been quite so bold as to say, well, Jesus, I'm perfect. <laughs> uh, I hope we're not that way. But uh, anyway, he, he claimed to have kept all God's laws, but Jesus challenged him to reveal his true situation. You see, the only way to become rich in Israel at that time was by amassing land. And that was a violation against the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. This young man was a leader in Israel. Yet rather than implement the God-given systems of loans and debt forgiveness and jubilee where people were set free, he was part of a powerful elite, wasn't he? He was part of a powerful elite. And it was about him acquiring things at the expense of other people. You see, if he wanted to belong to the coming kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching, then he needed to embrace the vision and the values of the kingdom by returning wealth to people and to the people. Uh, and he was unwilling to do that. So we see this attitude coming again and again and again. In Matthew 19, 16, the man came with... Um, he said, teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Well, if you've been in this church a while, you'll know that saying that is kind of getting things the wrong way around. Because he's saying, how do I earn my place with God in heaven? And of course, the gospel message tells us that you don't. <laughs> you give your life to Jesus. You begin a life of uh, refreshment in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit maintains you in that place of safety. Um, and what we do in good works is something that springs out of that, not, we're, not that we're earning our, our eternity. So he had it wrong from the start. And then he sort of quibbled about things and he said, if, uh, which ones, uh, you know, what sort of things should I do? And right behind that we see an attitude of trying to reduce the requirements. It's not a hard attitude of, 
Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do. I'm seeking how to expand myself. I'm seeking how to grow spiritually. I'm seeking how to help others. But behind this, there's an attitude of, how little can I do in these good works to get away? <laughs> What's the pass level? No. And then following that, he, he, uh, Jesus says, you know, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And this man, of course, has a struggle with that. He, this young man went away sad. It says because he had great wealth. But perhaps the unspoken there is that he had great wealth and it had him. He was controlled. He was owned by that wealth. He could not let go. And underneath that, you see another attitude. It's an attitude of stuff being all mine and nobody else's. I want to go briefly into the, what I was called the in-laws and the outlaws. <laughs> and uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, insisted that the law didn't apply to the Gentiles joining the church. He was very strong on that. You know, he was preaching continually grace. And he, rather than the life, sorry, he was, he was insisting on the law didn't apply to the Gentiles joining the church at that time. Rather, he said, the life of love, grace, generosity, humility and compassion and justice to which the law pointed was now being cultivated by the Spirit of God who is forming character in them as they became Christians. And isn't that the same with us? Uh, once again, I've been in churches where People very much stressed uh, the Old Testament and the law. And it's good to know those things, and it's good to grow in, in that as well. But if that's all there is, then once again, we're not coming from the heart. Uh, we're coming from something else. We're coming from a performance mentality, perhaps. You know, we're coming from a need to please people. Uh, we're coming from a feeling of insecurity. But overcoming that, we have a God who is far beyond that. He is loving, he is generous to us, and he wants to birth and grow that spirit within us. So um, the New Testament emphasis for the church was to be a community of generous love. And of course, we see that in 1 John 3 and James 2. And 1 John 3, 16, 17 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, that is the church first. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister, that is the church first, in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And James 2 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, talking about the church, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose that a brother or sister, that's talking about the church first, is without clothes and daily food. If someone says, if you say to them, someone in the church, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about it, what good is that? So now we go to beyond just simply those situations in the New Testament of addressing the church. 
And I want to look at the situation of brothers and sisters and neighbours. There's actually two categories, aren't there? There's the brothers and the sisters, which generally speaking refers to the people in churches. And then there's the neighbours. And we should be generous to all of these people, shouldn't we? But there is a definition, there's a distinction between those two. Everyone is a neighbour, but we have special responsibilities to those who are we, we, we would call brothers and sisters in the faith. And something similar happens, you know, in, in with, with regard to um, John 13, 34, 35, when we are commanded to love other people. You, you know the, the, the line, it says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. As I've just said, we should love everyone in the world, of course. But that is actually not the context of this verse. It's very important that we keep the, the distinction. The context of this verse is Jesus telling his followers that they should look after one another. And implicit in this is providing food and clothing and financial aid as well. It means giving to the church where we are connected as well as individual acts of kindness. I suppose I could say it would be giving the tithe and it would also be giving offerings. Let's put this another way. Jesus is saying that everyone, the non-Christian world, will know and understand that we are his disciples if we who are his disciples look after others who are his disciples. That's a bit convoluted, isn't it? But... But you get what I mean. We wouldn't want to, who, who wouldn't want to join a faith or a church where followers look after each other so well? People will say, I'll have what uh, she's having. Mutual love and support is enormously attractive to those who are not yet members of the faith. It's the best good work we can do, but it needs to come from the heart. We need to be aware that the philosophy of humanism has expanded, but also somehow subtly diluted the power of what Jesus intended. Jesus does talk about loving and caring for everyone. And of course, we do that when we talk about the community outside of this church, when we talk about local missions, when we talk about overseas missions. So Jesus does talk about loving and caring for everyone and even our enemies, such as the Good Samaritan story. But this is not the context here. In this context, he's specifically addressing Christian to Christian giving among those he calls followers and disciples. Does anyone, uh, has anyone heard of the early church leader Tertullian? And he's one of the early church fathers, uh, 100, uh, around 160 to 220. Well, he was a lawyer and he was a theologian and he was an apologist. And he imagines pagans, people outside the church, looking into the church and saying, look how they love one another. And of course, over the years, many people have said that. They've looked at the church, they've seen something special, and they've said, look how they love one another. And why do we do that? Because we're reflecting Jesus, first of all, to one another in the church and then beyond.
I think there's a place here to, to talk about tithing and giving briefly. Sometimes in an effort to simplify our faith, we Christians look at Acts 15 and Acts 20. Do you remember what happened in Acts 15 and Acts 20? It was the church council in Jerusalem. And they, once again, we go back to the situation where there were all these people joining the church, a lot. And a lot of them were Gentiles. They were, they were non-Jews. Uh, that's me and you, for most of you anyway. And, and so this was a problem for the church because they were saying to each other, what do we actually require of these people? And they became aware that particularly the Pharisees, as Jesus had said, they probably were remembering his words. The Pharisees had laid burdens on people that they themselves were not able to carry. And legalistic approaches to life and legalistic approaches to finance do exactly that. They lay burdens on people that the initiators can't even do themselves, but they require it. So they wanted to free people. And so, Christians, when we look at that, we, we see that it's church council in Jerusalem, and we, say, we see that they don't actually say anything about tithing and giving. And if we have the wrong attitude, like I've just mentioned earlier, then we will look at that and we will say, what's the minimum that I can get away with? <laughs> because we all have a heart that's a human heart, and the human heart is deceptive. The human, even our own hearts as we reflect within ourselves tends to say things like that. What's the minimum that I can get away with? How can I squeak through? But people read this anyway and they assume that there's no need to give these days, either tithes or burdens or, uh, or giving. So I talked to you about the burdens that they didn't want to, to give. And yet... Uh, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we find a church that's regularly collecting funds, week by week. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4 especially. So although the Jerusalem leaders said, we don't want to burden you, new Gentile believers, the church, however, is collecting funds. And when the Corinthians who presumably had this attitude that I talked about earlier, this very human tendency to say, well, why should we do that? I can't do that. What are the conditions that I can minimize to get away with this? Well, Paul takes them to task and he reminds them that Christ has been overwhelmingly generous to us. And so we should give financially as an expression of our Christ-likeness. That's in 2 Corinthians 8. And he says the Macedonians, the Macedonian church, were extraordinary in their giving, as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Once again, we come back to an attitude. Some of us have been in churches that were, shall we say, oppressive. Uh, I remember one church that I went to and they had a building fund. And what they did is they painted bricks a certain color. And if you're, <laughs> you're going where I'm going, <laughs> I can see it. And certain bricks were painted this color and other bricks were painted that color. And there was a barrow and a big box up the front. And if, it was a big call to give. And so what you did was you took a brick 
from here that was painted a certain colour on you, walked to the front and you put it in. What does that say? Pressure. Huge pressure. Because when you go to select it, you are, just, you are showing everyone that you're mean-spirited. <laughs> Never mind the fact that you might be poor, but... But that, that, once again, is the legalistic attitude, and we should never go there. Never, 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 never. However, we are called to, to love, and we are called to give. And I love this, this verse in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 13. It says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Does that have a resonance with you? That there might be a quality. There's a sharing. There's a sharing of God. There's a sharing of the gospel. There's a sharing of the spirit. And there's a sharing of material needs as well. And Paul adds in, uh, in verse 7, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Even that verse has been twisted to manipulate, hasn't it? And he says after that, and God is able to bless you abundantly. So whenever we come to a situation where we're asked to give, and I don't mean manipulated, let us remember that God gives abundantly. If I know in the back of my head that God cares for me, as he does for you. If I know that God gives abundantly, then I will have the freedom, the heart, to give more generously. I said earlier about people giving out of their, their lack. Just before I set off for the journey to New South Wales from Queensland, uh, some money was sent to me uh, by a woman there. I have to say that I was almost horrified uh, at the start. It, it touched me deeply because it was a reasonable amount of money and this person was blessing me and that would have been nice in itself. But this was coming from a woman who had several children. She had been abandoned by her husband. I knew that they were having difficulty paying the, the, uh, the rates. I knew that they were having difficulty paying the school fees, and I knew that food was short on the table. So for me, it was incredibly difficult to accept that gift. Very hard. Um, I don't want to suggest that because she gave, automatically there's an equation where everything went right. But I will say to you that things became astonishingly better for her after having given that gift. And I struggled with receiving it. I really struggled with receiving it, but eventually I did. Um, and I was pleased to be able to give back to her uh, later on at a much higher level. So those are the sort of things that come out of a beautiful heart of giving. As we come to an end, I want to look at I guess, first of all, three false narratives that we tell ourselves 
and then three true narratives that we perhaps should tell ourselves. You see, because our natural tendency is, as I've said, to resist, partly because we haven't yet got that picture in our mind of God being our provider, and that he will give to us. And in fact, everything that we have belongs to him. We need to get that. So, three false narratives. The first is, God helps those who help themselves. Many people think that's in the Bible. <laughs> Let me just make you absolutely clear, it's not in the Bible. Now, many people believe it's in the Bible, it's not. It first appeared in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1757, and it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Now, Franklin believed that there was a God, but he wasn't a Christian. And saying this sort of thing is a self-protection against those in need. And when you and I are faced with need, doesn't the self-talk kick in? Even the most godly of us, that voice comes up inside, giving us all the rational reasons why we shouldn't give. We can't. We can't afford it. Well, it's, it's, it's if only they did more. Somebody should do something about this, but not me. <laughs> so this argument says that God only helps those who get their act together and put in hard work. So if God will not help these lazy people, why should I? So there you are, God, I've just lumbered it on you. And it's also, it's a theology of good works, you see. Because while it's true that sin does lead to destruction, it's also true that many people who are doing it tough have not sinned. Do you remember Jesus telling his disciples in John 9 that neither the man born blind nor his parents had sinned? That breaks our theology sometimes, doesn't it? You know, because we've got to find someone to blame. And it's obviously the person who's in trouble. <laughs> Let's blame them, because it's not me. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't think like that. He says, neither the man born blind nor the parents had sinned. But this was a condition, an opportunity. In this particular case, it was an opportunity for healing. Think a little deeper about that. He was actually giving. When he healed the man, he was actually giving. And when we look after people, when we pray for healing, when we give to people, it's a healing as well as a giving. Okay, number two. If I give it away, I have less. Now, this self-talk is based on the false idea that whenever I give something away, I'll never see it again. It's lost. It vanishes. And someone else will drive me into poverty. <laughs> Isn't that another self-talk that pops up every now and again? And while it's true that we may temporarily lack something, and I've been there, it ignores the fact that everything we have belongs to God and he will continue to, to provide for us. In Psalm 24, 1 and 1 Corinthians 10, 26, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We live in it. We qualify. That's about us. We belong to God. Everything we have belongs to God. And that leads to the third rationale. 
Whatever I have is for my pleasure only. And this is the idea of entitlement. We tell ourselves that since we own everything, our money, our time and our abilities, and sometimes other people we think, uh, we can spend them on whatever we like, however we like, and usually on ourselves. Once again, the heart and the inside voice says, but I deserve that. Um, sometimes we do, but let's not forget the other people. So the three narratives there come together to form a mighty fortress against being generous. And to discover the truth, we need to look at what the Bible says. Okay, three true narratives. Helplessness, provision, and stewardship. Now, number one, God helps those who cannot help themselves. This one contains some, uh, some truth. You see, God does help those who are able to help themselves, but God also helps those who cannot help themselves. Did he help Paul? Paul said he knew how to go through all these situations in life, the situations of abundance, the situations of total lack. Was Paul out of God's will? I don't think so. So God also helps those who cannot help themselves. And the, the Gospels are full of stories of helpless, broken, despised people. And yet God helps them. The Bible reminds us that we are dependent on God's mercy every single moment of every single day. Number two in the three, if we all share, we all have enough. When the Israelites wandered in the desert, God helped them, even to the extent of daily food delivery. What a wonderful provision. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus reminds us that God still provides what we need daily. Not just food, but spiritual substance, uh, subsistence and, uh, and life itself. And he daily brings us financial help. There may be difficult times, but God delights in helping us. Number three, what I have is God's to use for his glory. In contrast to the what's mine is mine and only mine narrative, this true narrative says what appears to be mine is really God's. What appears to be mine is really God's. And that raises the issue of stewardship. Let's be good stewards. Even if we spend what we have only on ourselves, we need to be good stewards with that as well, don't we? That means making good decisions about what we have. And as I said before, we can't buy our way into heaven but what we do with what we've been given by God will one day be revealed. In fact, it's often revealed in this life as well. Number three, the God question. Is God speaking to me? So we have the, the, uh, the relationship question. Uh, am I in relationship with people? Uh, the difference question. 
Um, does it make an eternal difference? Because not all charity is the same. And number three, the God question. Is God speaking to me? One of the most enjoyable things you and I can do as a Christian is to get a sense of God's leading. So it's not just a case of recognizing that all these things come from God and I'm responsible for that and I should look after the people in the church primarily or firstly and then give generously beyond that. But there's a sense of God leading us and I hope you have that um, and experience that because it's, it's joy, it's fun. One of the most fun things you can know is I'm on assignment today. This is not just a matter of handing something over, but this is God working, and this is God working through me. And you can ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And what a delight it is when he puts in our minds something, there's a person, and I want you to do such and such for them. So we had, as I said, the three... Um, the three false narratives, we had God helps those who help themselves. If I give it away, I have less, and what I have is mine for my pleasure. And then the correct or helpful versions of, of uh, those three narratives, the true narratives, God in fact helps those who cannot help themselves. Number two, if we all share, uh, at least eventually we will all have enough. And uh, three, what I have is God's and it's to use for his glory. How do we decide how to give? I mentioned the three things there too. Uh, first of all, the relationship question. Uh, am I in relation with, with these people? Am I prepared to commit to them? Am I intentional about it? Does it advance the kingdom of God? Number two, the difference. Will it, my giving make an eternal difference? Not all charity is the same. Um, our giving should be strategic uh, and then hopefully most of it will go towards getting people into heaven. We can't buy our way into heaven, but what we do with what we've been given God will be revealed. And thirdly, the God question, is God speaking to me? Let's go into our lives expecting that God will reveal opportunities to us. And finally, when we give our tithes at the local church, when we give our gifts to those within the church, and when we share our wealth in various ways with the poor, we move from good intentions to practical, biblical generosity. In fact, we display the very character of God. When that woman gave to me out of her lack, it wasn't just a helpful gift. It wasn't just an amazing thing for somebody to do who was very poor at that point. But she had the confidence in faith to, to do something and display the character of God. And subsequently, she has enjoyed the character of God from others as well. Isn't that a, a lovely reassurance? And I've seen that many, many times. So what I'd say is that giving is not or should not be a legal, oppressive thing because that kills what God intended. And I don't think he rewards it, really. Uh, let's go to the heart. Let's give out of a generous spirit. Let's give out of a willingness and a desire 
to reflect God to those others in the church and those beyond as well. It's an exciting, rewarding journey. It's a journey that reveals more of the heart of our generous God. It's a journey of freedom. It's a journey of freedom, not of oppression. So let's take the journey with enthusiasm, shall we? And I know many of you are already doing that, and I bless you for that. And I, those who have not yet come to, to that realization, I pray that you will, because it's a lovely, lovely, thrilling journey, and God can be trusted. Amen? Amen. Thank you very much.